morning. See if I'm. Can you hear me now? Hello. Not. Uh, have you got me there? I am. They found me. Um, well, I, let me draw a couple things to your attention this morning before we open the scriptures together. First of all, um, extraordinary demonstration of God's mercy and faithfulness to us has taken place, and you may not have noticed it, and that is that our children's director, Stephanie Jackson, has served our church for 15 years. Now, children's, uh, children's ministry years are kind of like dog years. So that's like, that's like 125 years uh, in normal, normal life. So I, I hope that you, if, if you have children or have served in our children's ministry, you, you know how, how dedicated she is to her work and to our families. Uh, I hope you'll encourage her. There's a, near the exit in the lobby, there's a table set up with a place for you to write her a note, uh, leave her a, a, a note of encouragement. If you want to leave a gift as an expression of your love for her, that, that's fine too, though she'd be embarrassed by that. But write her a note, let her know how much she means to you and your family and to our church. So that, that's an extraordinary, extraordinary thing. And uh, another really amazing thing is I've been gone for two weeks and, uh, did you notice how outstanding the teaching was last, the last two weeks with Ben Merkel and Ranjur Locke teaching us? Um, this is one of those churches where I leave and the teaching gets better. You know, it's awesome. So, so thankful. I was gone at my daughter's wedding. I think we have a picture uh, of the wedding. Um, that's my family, minus the groom. Uh, this is a pregame picture, but those are, that's my family. I have a big family, lots of kids and lots of uh, in-laws and such. Uh, but there is a groom. We have another picture. Yeah, there is a groom and bride. So, so thank you guys for many of you served us, blessed us, and served in my place while I was gone for the last two weeks. So thank you for your, your kindness in all those, those things. I grew up um, in Illinois. The S is silent. Illinois. <laughs> Um, it's known as the land of Lincoln. And uh, not only that, but in my little town called Metamora, Illinois, uh, which when I was growing up was a town of about a thousand people in the middle of a cornfield, um, there's, uh, there's this courthouse uh, where Abraham Lincoln actually practiced law when he was an attorney. Um, and that courthouse still stands to this day on the town square uh, as kind of a Lincoln-era museum. And so as a result of all of that, I've always kind of grown up, I've, I've developed an interest in, uh, in Abraham Lincoln. He's, he's been someone that I'd like to, to read about and, and learn about. Um, Constantine Campbell recounts a fascinating story about Lincoln and his Secretary of State, uh, a man named William Seward. Now, before Lincoln's presidential nomination by the Republican Party, Seward was far more famous than Lincoln. Um, he was certain to win his party's nomination, was understandably shocked and upset that this relatively unknown 
Hick from Illinois, which we're fondly referred to as, people from Illinois, we're, we're Hicks, had somehow stolen the nomination that Seward thought was rightfully his. So in spite of Seward's animosity towards Lincoln, the president appointed Seward as Secretary of State. So for the first year or so of Lincoln's presidency, Seward remained adamantly opposed to Lincoln, um, believing the common misconception that he was a dull, ape-like fool. And in fact, Seward contented himself to believe that he could effectively run the country by manipulating Lincoln as his puppet. So nothing, it turns out, was further from the truth. The turning point came when, to Seward's shock, he realized that he had been outsmarted and outmaneuvered by Lincoln, who knew all along that Seward, what Seward thought of him and what he was trying to do. The first thing that changed was Seward's respect for Lincoln. He realized he was dealing with no dull-witted hick. Lincoln was, in fact, very, very sharp. But Lincoln held no grudge, but forgave Seward for his arrogance and, and uh, dishonesty. And over the months and years to follow, Lincoln and Seward, uh, Seward's the guy in the white pants there, they developed uh, a close friendship. So the adversaries had become friends. And uh, Lincoln would spend countless evenings at Seward's home talking about the fireplace, enjoying each other's company, Seward's allegiances eventually changed to the extent that he would frequently and publicly say that Lincoln was the greatest, wisest man he ever knew. Now, on the night of Lincoln's assassination, the conspirators also attacked Seward in his home. He survived, but was rendered unconscious for several days. And when he woke, lying in his bed, he realized that Lincoln must have been assassinated. Um, two factors led to this conclusion. First, the flag at the White House was raised to half-mast. He could see it from his bedroom window. Second, if Lincoln lived, Seward knew that he would have been by Seward's bed waiting for his friend to regain consciousness. And after receiving confirmation of Lincoln's death, Seward wept for two days. And Constantine writes, here was an example of a man's allegiances turned around. Seward had been Lincoln's adversary. He did not respect him, like him, or care for him. But after getting to know Lincoln and after experiencing his forgiveness, wisdom, and affection, Seward developed a great love for his now friend, President Lincoln. And then Constantine does something really interesting he twists this story around on us and he says something that very much echoes the language of our passage today in 1 John chapter 2. He says, to know God is to love him. As we grow in our knowledge of him, so too will our love grow. Our allegiance shifts from the loves of this world to love for our heavenly Father. And since they are in opposition, it is not possible to love both the rebellious world and God. And so in our passage today, we, we're gonna hear these words. 
Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if you'll open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, I'll pray for us and we'll, we'll dig in there. Father, grant mercy to us now um, that we might hear and receive your word. Lord, guide my words that I might, um, that I might speak for you and not for me. And this we ask in Christ's great name. Amen. Our passage starts a couple verses before the one I just read. Uh, chapter 2, verse 12. It goes like this. I am writing to you, John says, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So six times, John says, this is why I'm writing to you, essentially. Six times. And this week, having utilized all of my advanced Bible study training skills, I have discerned that John intends to tell us here why he is writing. <laughs> you can break those six declarations into kind of two groups, two stanzas, because it's almost poetic. Some of your Bibles kind of break it out and format it like poetry there. Break it into two groups, two stanzas that address three different groups of people. You probably heard it. He addresses children. And that's language that John commonly uses for the whole church. They're, they're all children of God, as he's going to say at the beginning of chapter 3. It's an expression of the love of God. So he'll address everybody as children. And then there's another couple of groups. He addresses fathers and he addresses young men. And it's not entirely clear who he has in mind there. It could be that he just means literally fathers, older men, and younger men. Or that he's referring to spiritual maturity, more mature and less mature. And, you know, those circles often overlap for us. Not always, but they often overlap. It raises the question, though, and half of you are thinking about it. What about the women? And ladies, your husbands were thinking about you. That's what I meant at that moment. They were concerned for you. Um, what about the women? It's all, it's all old men and young men. And um, Karen Jobes points out in her commentary that these terms are indeed not inclusive. A lot of times the Bible will, will use language that could mean men and women. It sounds male to us. But this is, these are particular words that are particularly addressing men. Um, but she also points out that it appears that John is using these words, she says, with a rhetorical force to describe all of his readers. So as we read this, ladies, though the language may sound exclusive of you, you can 
and you should find yourselves in these verses. The truths they convey are yours just as fully as they are our men folks. Okay? They're yours. So John's six reasons here for writing this letter can kind of be combined into three because if you heard, he repeats himself. Um, he says things repeatedly there. And the first of those is found in verse 12. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And I don't want us to get lost in who he's writing, which group he's writing to what thing. Because I think all of what he's writing fits us all. All who are in Jesus. All that he says is for us all. So I want us to think about these things as ours, as belonging to us. The first reason he says for writing is that their sins and ours are forgiven for his name's sake. Their sins and ours are forgiven. This is awesome. Listen to the cascade of scripture that heralds this best of news. Jesus said it in Luke 24. It is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all generations beginning from Jerusalem, to all nations, rather. Peter says in the book of Acts, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Paul says it in Colossians 1. Jesus has delivered us, or God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Psalms say it. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Isaiah, the prophets, paint this picture. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Because though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This is the best of news, okay? You don't have to bear your sins anymore. Thanks be to God, huh? that you don't have to carry around the guilt and the shame, that you don't have to work it off somewhere, somehow, in some unattainable way. All scripture declares it over and over and over. All of your sins, all of them, have been forgiven by the great loving cross work of Jesus. Your darkest, most shameful, vilest acts that you've ever done forgiven as far as the east is from the west from God white as snow the unpayable debt has been paid and you are forgiven there's a guy in Raleigh his name is Kieran Healy And last year, he received the notification of his upcoming water bill. 
looked pretty normal, $189.92. Seems a little high to me. But when he saw the additional service charge tacked on of $99,999,999, it didn't seem a little too high to him. He, uh, apparently, he was confident, evidently, that he had not used that much water the previous month. Healy jokingly asked his water provider on Twitter if he could make installment payments on the balance of $100 million. Uh, the company issued a hurried apology citing an error in the software of a third-party company, of course, um, that helps send out payment reminders. Hey, but for you and me, there's no error on that bill. It's not a mistake. Those dark secrets and incessant daily infractions add up. They are ours, and we have earned them. But here, John, and virtually every other writer in the New Testament and many in the Old tell us that our unpayable debt has been paid. Our sins are forgiven in Christ, every single one of them. Listen to those scriptures again. To Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Don't miss it, okay? This is why John is writing this letter. Because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. This is the first reason that he writes, because this is true of the people he's writing to, and it's, it's true of us in Christ. Okay. But he has a second reason, another wonderful reason for writing. He's writing because they know God. I mean, they really know God. Um, you pick it up in verses 13 and 14. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. You skip down. Write to you, children, because you know the Father. Again, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Three of his six statements about why he's writing revolve around this central idea. They know God. He believes they know God. And J.I. Packer, who wrote a book called Knowing God, it's a Christian classic, helps us think about how vital this is. He says, what were we made for? To know God? What aim should we have in life? To know God? What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? To know God. What's the best thing in life? To know God. What in humans gives God most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. He goes on and, and talks about why truly knowing what it really means to us to know God. He says, it means I am graven on the palm of his hand. I am never out of God's mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me and no moment, therefore, when his care 
falters. There's a missionary and a martyr for Christ named Jim Elliott. He wrote this in his journals. He said, I walked out to the hill just now. It is exalting, delicious. To stand embraced by the shadows of a friendly tree with the wind tugging at your coattail and the heavens hailing your heart to gaze in glory and to give oneself again to God, what more could a man ask? Oh, the fullness, pleasure, sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. Oh, the fullness, pleasure, sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. Because of the work of Jesus, our sins are forgiven, and therefore we can truly know God. Know him, know him as Father, John writes. Not, not just some cold, distant king or judge, but as we sing, our good, good Father. We can know Jesus as a friend. That's, Jesus is probably in view when he says, you know the one who was from the beginning. That's likely a reference to Jesus. Jesus says himself in John 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. We get to know Jesus like a good friend. And this is the second reason why John writes Their sins are forgiven, and they know God intimately, personally, not just up here, but also down here. He's got one more reason that he writes. It's because they have overcome the evil one. He says this twice. In verse 13, he says, young men, you have overcome the evil one. And again, in verse 14, young men, you have overcome the evil one. Hebrews describes it vividly for us. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things. So he became a man. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The evil one has no power over us anymore because of the work of Jesus on the cross in our behalf. Book of Revelation describes it beautifully. Here's a loud voice in heaven and it's saying this. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. That is Satan. Who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And it is, according to what John is writing here, by abiding in the word of God that we daily overcome the evil one. He says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. Pastor John Piper says that Satan tempts and tests in only one way. He lies. And in all his lying, it boils down to two lies. In every test, his lie is, God is bad. And in every temptation, his lie is, sin is better. God is bad, sin is better. 
He has one tune to play, and he plays it in a thousand ways. And so John is telling us that the word, abiding in the word of God safeguards us from the evil one. It declares to us the good, loving, sacrificial work of Jesus and enables us to overcome the devil's lies that God is not a good, good father. So John is writing because their sins are forgiven, because they know God, and because they've overcome the evil one in Christ. In a nutshell, you could say, he is writing them because he knows they're true Christians, right? They really are followers of Jesus. And they are, through these three beautiful ways, deeply loved by God. And when you're loved like that, when, when you're forgiven by God and you're invited to know him, you truly know him, and, and you are freed from, from the dominion of the evil one, you just want to love God back because of all that he's done for you. This is the response of a believing heart. You want to love God back. That's the mark of a Christian. And John's gonna say in just a couple pages in his letter, we love because he first loved us. When you're loved like this, you want to love God back. And now John tells us the shape that our love is supposed to take. Um, Constantine Campbell again writes, since our identities have been transformed by God, our lives ought therefore to be transformed. This is how verses 12 to 14 and verses 15 to 17 are related. Those first verses remind John readers who, John's readers who they have become. And the second group exhorts them to live accordingly or more precisely. It exhorts them to love accordingly. So John is about to show us how we love God back because of these things that are true, the way he's loved us. And first he puts it in the negative, in that verse I started with. Do not love the world or the things in the world. It's interesting. We're about a third of the way through the book of 1 John, right? We're we're midstream through chapter 2. There's only five chapters. This is the first command in the book of 1 John. First one, do not love the world or the things in the world. Um, And some of you are thinking, hey, wait a minute. What about that whole John 3.16 thing? God so loves the world, right? So it's okay for God to love the world, but we're not supposed to love the world? How does this work? Um, it's a, good, it's a good question. One way to think about it is simply the fact that the way when John writes about the world, he uses that expression differently. For instance, if you read in John 3.16, when he talks about God so loved the world, he's really saying he loves all the people in the world. It's about just a kind of a reference to the whole world, kind of generically. But in other places... John will use world to reflect all that's in rebellion against God. For instance, Jesus says in John 17, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, clearly Jesus was in the world. Clearly he was a person, but he's not of the world. So he's using it differently there. 
In 1 John, we're going to see it used that way again in chapter 3. He's going to say, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And that the world here is being used as everything that's in rebellion against God in the world. And to love the world is incompatible with loving God. Verse 15 again says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, or you could say the love for the Father, is not in him. So if you love the world, you can't love God. Jesus would put it this way in Luke chapter 16. No servant can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other. James agrees with this when he says in James chapter 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What does it mean to love the world and the stuff that's in it? And what is it about loving the world that's so incompatible with loving God? Be clear, there is a world out there, and if you love the world, this this rebellious world against God, you cannot love God at the same time. They're mutually exclusive categories. Well, John fleshes it out for us a little bit in the next verse. Look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes And pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. That, your Bibles likely read, pride, the pride of life. These three things, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life or the pride of possessions are that which we must not give ourselves to if we want to love God back, okay? If you want to love God, these are mutually exclusive categories, right? Let's let's think about them briefly. The first two really kind of are all tangled up together. Um, The first is the desires of the flesh. It's been suggested that this represents desires that come from within, whereas the desires of the eyes are desires that are triggered from without kind of a thing. That might be one way to think about it. The desires of the flesh, our passions, what we long for and hope in that is not God himself, nor things given to us by God for our joy, okay? It's to love other things. Paul gives us kind of a list of these things for starters in Galatians 5. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. So he's just getting started, right? This is just a sampler of the works of the flesh. All of these could be considered under the desires or the lusts of of the flesh. Now, of course, the lust du jour in our day is sexual, right? Since 2015, from 2015 to 2017, human beings 
it's estimated, have spent in that two-year period the equivalent of one million years watching porn. In two years, from 2015 to 2017, humanity has spent the equivalent of a million years watching porn. Paul Tripp writes about why this is so incompatible with loving God. Um, He says this, he says, a man is walking home from work and lusting after the woman who's approaching him on the sidewalk. He slows down his walk to get a longer look and then he turns around and watches as she passes. Think with me again about the the godlike small g posture of this man. First, he's treating this moment as if it belongs to him alone. It's as if he is sovereign and she is on the sidewalk according to his will and for his pleasure. He's the self-appointed deity of the moment. The world has shrunk to the size of his desire and he rules it for his pleasure. He will have what he will have, even if it is only the right to stare at body parts and imagine having them for his pleasure. But there's more, he says. For that moment, he is stealing God's creation and taking it as his own. He has no right to this woman. She does not actually belong to him in any way, but he takes her with his mind and his eyes. He's ripped this woman out of the hands of God and claimed her as his own for whatever momentary pleasure he can achieve. He has denied God's existence. He has set himself up as God. And the solution, he says, we must recognize, recognition of, and living for community with God for which I was created is what keeps my sexual life pure. There is no other way. Heart-controlling love for God protects my heart from wandering to all the places it could wander in this sexually insane world. The desires of the heart, the desires of the flesh, the lusts of the flesh. The desires of the eyes. And this has been said to be desires that come from without, things we see and long for that make us say, I want this. I want this. I'm going to get me one of those, a better one of those. And I think emblematic of this desire are our houses. We're so happy in our house when we first get it. And then after a while, and drives through several nicer neighborhoods, our house is really lousy. It's small. It's old. Things are breaking. I want a new house. I've shared these statistics with you before. In 1950, the average home size was 983 square feet. Some of you have garages bigger than that. 983 square feet. And 3.37 people lived in it. By 2009, the average home square footage had ballooned to 2,700 square feet, okay, from 983 to 2,700, and the average occupant was only 2.57 people. In 59 years, the average American home grew by 175%, almost tripled. While the average family size shrunk by 24%. There's a story uh, written by a man named Frank Honeycutt. He said, several years ago, I heard Millard Fuller of Habitat for Humanity address the National Press Club on public radio. 
and he recalled a workshop at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary with 200 pastors in attendance. The assembled pastors quickly pointed towards greed and selfishness as the reason the church never had enough money to assist others creatively. And Millard then asked them this seemingly innocent question. Is it possible for a person to build a house so large that it's sinful in the eyes of God? Raise your hand if you think so. And all 200 pastors raised their hand. Okay, said Millard. Then can you tell me at exactly what size the precise square footage a certain house becomes sinful to occupy? Silence from the pastors. He says, you could have heard a pin drop. And finally, there's this small, quiet voice that spoke up from the back of the room and said, when it is bigger than mine. And that's how we think. It's always someone else's house. It's always the house that's bigger than mine, that it's, that's finding its way into somebody's heart as, as the lust of the eyes. See, these two desires, these two lusts, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, they do not spring from the Father, John says, and therefore will ultimately destroy a relationship with him. John Piper says that the world is driven by these two things, passion for pleasure and then pride in possessions, which takes us to our third, our third in this unholy trinity, the pride of life. Satisfaction in what we have such that we think we don't need God. That's the pride of life. Gary Burge calls it an unholy pride in what one has. He says it's an attitude of pretentious arrogance or subtle elitism that comes from one's view of wealth, rank, or stature in society. It's an overconfidence that makes us lose any notion that we're dependent on God. The pride of life. The pride of possessions. You know, John is warning us that there is a world out there that is extraordinarily dangerous for our hearts. It will rob you of the capacity to love God. What Jim Elliott said was the fullness, pleasure, and sheer excitement of knowing and loving God on earth. Dr. Aiken at Southeastern recounts a biblical story. He says, one of the saddest stories in the Bible concerns a man by the name of Demas. He's not very well known, but his life serves as an important, tragic lesson for those of us who love the Father who sent his Son. We first hear from Colossians 4, where he is working hard for the gospel alongside Luke. He's listed along with nearly 10 others for their faithful service to Christ. We don't hear anything again of him until until 2 Timothy chapter 4, toward the end of Paul's last letter, as Paul anticipates his own execution and martyrdom for Christ. And there we simply read, Demas has deserted me because he loved this present world. Another translation says, he loves the things of this life. You can almost feel Paul's heartbreak as he pens those words, Dr. Aiken says. They can almost feel God's break, too. And so John, John moves to one more incentive not to love the world, as though that's not enough. 
He says the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. One writer simply put it, there's no future in worldliness. It's just going to pass away. Donna Shaper, she writes, um, there we were. She says, two 28-year-olds in love on the rim of the Grand Canyon. New Year's Eve. As we watched the sun go down, we remembered the hotel was full and we needed a place to stay. My husband had a brainstorm. I'll bet the ranger in the bottom of the canyon is lonely, especially tonight. Let's call him and see how he would feel about having some guests. So the ranger's telephone number was in the book. We dialed, explained our situation, and offered to bring groceries down. And Gary, the ranger, said he and his wife, Gina, would love company. So half hour after dusk, we're on our way down the canyon. After an uneventful passage down the curving canyon, we arrived at the bottom, and we're invited into their large cabin, and they served us a nice dinner, and then they showed us their sports room. It was full of abandoned sports equipment, high-class hiking boots, expensive backpacks, fancy hats, even fancier walking sticks. This is what Gary said. People can walk in easily enough with all of this stuff. They just can't walk out. They just can't walk out. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. To know God, to love him back. With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Jesus calls that eternal life. So what we want to do today is to come to this table and fuel our love for God over and above all lesser things. We come to this table, we want to remember that Jesus, by his cross work, has forgiven us all of our sins, all of them, all of them. He's allowed us to truly know God, and he has secured for us victory over the evil one, and we love him for it. So much so that we would lay aside things and desires that conflict with loving God. And that may be what you need to do today when you come to the Lord's table. The Lord's table at North Wake is for believers and for believers who are walking in fellowship with God. It's for followers of Jesus who are following him. Doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means you're repentant. That you're willing before you come to the table to say to God, I I confess my sin to you. Help me. Have mercy on me. And it may be today as you think about the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and the pride of possessions that there's something you need to confess before you come to this table and partake of it. And so I would invite you to forsake your sin Cling to the mercy of Christ and come and remember his great love for you. We remember together that on the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body and it's broken for you. Do this, he said, in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup, it's the new covenant in my blood. It's for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me.